and welcome to Hello Human, a podcast to explore ideas and feature humans working in AI and technology. Dr. Yeo Goldzamir, the CEO of Embryonics, joins us today on the Hello Human podcast, where we discuss the latest topics in artificial intelligence and how it's being applied in the real world. I'm John Nisley, the host of Hello Human and a longtime technologist helping companies navigate emerging digital solutions. A big thanks to Fortress IQ for sponsoring the program, and be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is part of a special series on women in AI that we are very excited about here at Fortress IQ, and Elizabeth Middleman from our marketing team, who has been the key driver of this special series, is participating in the session as well. On this episode, we're going to explore human intelligence versus machine intelligence. Computers have always been superior to humans when it comes to computational heavy work. While managing and finding patterns in huge data sets is a cakewalk for a computer, humans can't make it past the first few hundred rows manually before data overload sets in. Our brains are simply not wired to handle the data. On the other side of the coin, expert decisions requiring judgment have traditionally been the primary domain for humans over computers, but that gap is narrowing. In finance, algo trading now drives 80% of the U.S. stock market. Even lawyers are not immune. A team of experienced contract lawyers were outclassed last year by an AI system. Healthcare is one of the next major frontiers for AI, and we have a true expert in the field to give us her insight today. Embryonics technology outperformed a panel of embryologists in predicting which embryos will result in pregnancy by nearly 20%. It also outperformed the human experts by nearly 30% in recommending which embryos not to use, which can lead to significant cost savings and prevent miscarriages. Remarkable results in an industry that has essentially had the same success rate for 30 years. So welcome to the Hello Human. Yal, you've got an incredible story, and this promises to be a great conversation. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for joining us for the final episode of Hello Human, Women in AI. We are so excited to have you here to share your experiences from all the way across the world. I'd like to begin with going back to the start. You grew up in an ultra-Orthodox community and broke the norms by being the first in your community to be accepted into medical school and later becoming a doctor. Would you be able to share more of your personal journey and how you found your interest in the medical field and later IVF? Yes. So, as you mentioned, I grew up in a Jewish ultra-Orthodox community of Israel, still part of the community, by the way. And... You know, I went, I went through a beautiful childhood and, well, the meaning of growing up in, in our community is basically that you were, you were going through an independent and separate educational system that is separate for girls and boys. So I went through the traditional schooling system of our community. And I would say that, generally speaking, uh, in, our, in the place I'm coming from, uh, so girls are, you know, mostly accepted to become, you know, mothers and housewives. And going to university is, is you know, a taboo, especially for women. And just kind of leaving the community and going to a place that is very far from the known and protected, sort of protected environment of the community. So it was really a taboo. And, and then I remember myself, uh, you know, for some reason, uh, because... You know, it's like asking someone why you why you fell in love with someone else, right? So something some things you don't not everything can be explained. But from a very young age, I remember myself 
dreaming of becoming a doctor and admiring this field. And I think that my attraction to the medical field was because of two kind of a combination of two things in my personality. One part is really the fact that, you know, uh, it's being a doctor is, you know, with all the scientific uh, knowledge and, and generally all the knowledge that doctors have was, was very attracting for me to learn and, and, uh, and educate myself and all those topics and, and, you know, chemistry and physics and biology was very attracting for me. But I also felt that the kind of the only, or it's, it's the best thing you can do because it's not only knowledge and science, but also combining the human part and you're actually using this knowledge. You're not just acquiring this knowledge, but you're in a very direct way using it to help people in your work with people. So for me, from a very young age, it felt like, you know, the best thing, the best profession you can have. And I really wanted to, to become a doctor. So, of course, when I, you know, when I got to a certain age, when you need to apply to university, I understood that I have a kind of a huge academic gap that I need to fulfill in order to get accepted to your, to your medical school. And I will, you know, I'll make a long story short, but about 11 years ago, I became I, the first woman or the first person from my community who got accepted to medical school in Israel. And I'm happy to say that I'm not the last one. And I think that uh, for the last part of your question, so my attraction to the fertility field, I guess, so again, I really like the scientific part. It was very interesting. I was really fascinated about all these scientific advances and you know, all the opportunities that are available for patients because of this, you know, amazing research and science that is behind fertility treatments. But also, again, I think it's also part of my personality and my culture. I grew up in a place and an environment where family means a lot and family really comes first. I also met many women who struggle with infertility. So I guess it's a combination of, you know, nature and environment, I would say. Thanks very much for that background. Just a, a fascinating story being the, the first one for your community to, to attend medical school. You know, as a doctor, based on your training and experience in the hospital, you know, you've obviously learned the various aspects that impact fertility, including, you know, understanding the processes and factors that, that go into the decision making. My father was a physician and we talked a lot about medicine growing up. And once I started working in AI a bit, it really dawned on me that a lot of the diagnosis and treatment is essentially pattern recognition. But whereas an individual may see, you know, 30,000 patients, you know, in their career, you know, your AI model is based on millions of anonymized patient records. You know, how do you think about this issue of experience versus data? You know, is, is, is one more valuable than the other? I think it's a great question. I'll just tell you my experience. So I think that being a young doctor gave me a young researcher, gave me the ability to look on the current workflow and uh, from a different angle and sometimes question it. So on the one hand, I was behind the scenes. I was there. I saw how decisions are made. I saw how the process is done, you know, from a practical point of view. And I understood the science that stands behind it. And one of the things that I, you know, in, in a few months, I understood that, you know, IVF was invented 40 years ago. But I understood that in many aspects, this industry stuck in 1990. And, and things like the whole process is still manual. The way the decisions are made is there is a prominent factor of trial and error. 
there are still, you know, the data that is available is, is you know, it's, it's per each patient is really, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of, lot of data that is accumulating for each patient. But practically, we're still using the, the you know, this, the limited, you know, factors that are believed to be influential traditionally. We're still relying on them, though there are so many new factors that are added, so many other tests, and potentially the right way, it's not just to look on one factor or a limited, you know, set of parameters, but it's better to be able to analyze all the parameters and not only on, you know, in a temporal way, not only in one time point, but, you know, track all of them. And But still, everything is manual, 100%, and the trial and error component is is, is really a huge part of the process. And, uh, you know, in IVF, you have many decisions. So it, it you see it again and again and again. And then I think I understood that, you know, though that, you know, IVF is based on a good, fertility treatments are based on a great science and there is no argue about this. But in terms of technology, you know, the field is left behind and, and, and you need to, I mean, we need to acknowledge it and we need to accept it and we need to see what we can do about this. And this is what I asked myself, can I do something about this? Because it was just, you know, obvious that in terms of technology, there, that there is there is a huge lagging there, and I think that the fact that percent percent, you know, the success success rate of, of fertility treatments are around twenty five percent, or you know, the average success it's around 20, 20 to twenty five percent, and the fact that this situation uh, stagnated for many years, so it's both very low and but also stagnated for many years, it's just a good prove that the current practice have reached its performance wall. So all this information together, I think all this, you know, thoughts together brought me to the point that I thought, what can I do about this? And, uh, you know, start thinking on the direction of embryonics. And so this is how I, like, this is the way I saw it working in a clinic. And this is what brought me to think on embryonics. So, you know, early in my technology career, I was involved in an online medical education program for a couple of years, and I used to debate with the key opinion leaders who were brought in to, to present, you know, whether you'd prefer to get diagnosed by a leader in the field, you know, your average doctor, or an AI model. And, you know, maybe, you know, now that I've thought about it for, for years, you know, maybe the answer is, is almost an augmented, you know, integrated approach that really couples human intelligence with the machine intelligence. And, you know, would that potentially, you know, more formal human agent teaming, you know, does that potentially give us the best outcome? I, I fully agree about this. I fully agree about this. I think that, you know, it's interesting because we're willing to accept the fact that humans, like the, we really accept to human errors, but we're not willing to accept technological errors. And it's just, it's not uh, the conversation today or not the issue today, but it's an interesting point to think about, but I really, uh, I think I agree with you and we're not, I think that AI or any other technologies are not going to replace doctors. I don't think they need to replace doctors. I think that except of analyzing huge data sets and there are many other things that doctors can do. And I think that those, these tools can, you know, augment and optimize the performance of the doctor, but also give him more time to talk to the patient, to touch the patient, you know, to 
to organize his thoughts and on other things that he needs to do. And I, I think that we need doctors are going to stay with us. And the only thing is that they will have these AI systems that will enable them to, to perform better and to allocate more time to, uh, for, you know, for the human part of being a doctor, not for, for only analyzing the information. And I think that this is, and, and I mean, I, I want to be in a world that every doctor that I, that I meet as, you know, what is, is it, I know that he is a top tier doctor because he uses all the, you know, advanced technologies to help me, but still I want to talk with a doctor. I want to have a human that, you know, is walking me through my, my condition. So I think that this is, you know, the best combination of doctors and technology. And there's obviously a you know a, a good side of both humans and machines, but there's the other side of the coin as well, and each of them have their 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 negatives. You know, I want to talk for a minute about you know bias, and obviously there's a fair amount in the technology media about fair and ethical AI. You know, at the same time, and and you could argue less reported. You know, there are nearly 200 forms of cognitive biases that people, you know, including doctors, are subjected to, and it, it influences their decisions as well. As both a technologist and a, and a physician, you know, how do you reconcile the issue of bias? So I think that, uh, you know, so as a doctor, I, I, I would say that I, I'm trying to be aware of myself. And if I'm biased, if I have some biases on, on, on something or on someone, so I, I, I think that trying to be aware of it is the first and most important uh, step towards solving it. But as a technologist, I think it's even more important because whenever it comes to data, and you, you, obviously when you're building AI algorithms, you need to have high quality data sets that you really can trust uh, because you're training your algorithm using these data sets. And I think that one of the things that we were quite lucky in embryonics that when we trained our algorithms, so we didn't use any kind of intermediate endpoints and the way that we train our algorithms is always based on a real endpoint of if it's pregnancy or, you know, actual implantation that can be measured with, you know, blood test results or ultrasound tests or things like this. We are relying here on the labeling. Our labeling process is relying on actual endpoints that can be measured and not on human decisions. So we are not trying to mimic the human thinking. We're not asking what would the doctor decide on this patient or what would the embryologist say on this embryo and using it for the training set but we are so we are not doing this we're looking at the data of the patient and then the end point is what happened to this patient did she get pregnant or did she have any side effects or things that we can measure that are measurable only measurable you know endpoints are considered in becoming part of our labeling process it's great to see that you've been able to address bias within embryonics. And throughout this series, we've seen how different individuals and organizations address and conquer bias within AI. Yael, you never imagined yourself working at a startup, but here you are today owning and running your own company. What was it that finally pushed you to step away and start embryonics? Wow. <laughs> so, um, so yes, I never imagined myself building and running a company. It wasn't part of my plans. The plan was completely different. But I think that it was a combination of, of several things. First thing is when I understood that like the big pain 
of, of the current IVF industry and the lack of the real lack of technology and the potential of good technology and the potential impact of good technology on, on, on the lives of patients. So of patients. So I thought to myself that, you know, being a doctor in, in, in an hospital or being a doctor in a clinic, so I can, I can potentially impact, have impact on lives of the patients that I'm seeing in my clinic or the patients that I'm meeting in the hospital but it's quite limited, you know, impact that you can have because it's only the people you're emitting. But if I am um, able to build a technology that can impact lives of millions of women globally, so my potential impact will become, you know, unlimited and I can really, and a really significant influence on lives of millions of women. So in kind of, you know, I, I feel obliged to, to do this. I couldn't just say, okay, you know, something that kind of became an obligation and I knew I, I can have an impact on lives of millions of women and I couldn't say, you know, so I'll just, you know, I couldn't just, just leave it and don't do it. And I think it's also, you know, curiosity on the research side and I guess also some courage, you know, to embark on a totally, totally new um, journey and something you didn't plan on doing it, but uh, it came from a very kind of inner place again that I knew that I can help many many people and I just felt I had to do it. That's an amazing story to hear and it's great that you felt that you needed such a need to do such a thing. So you use data and real numbers to better the lives of hundreds of women and families. What was once a 100% manual decision making processes was transformed by embryonics to take into account influential moments and decisions. And from the patient side, they now actually understand what their diagnosis and treatment is. So my question is, embryonics is one example of using AI to better human lives. How else do you see AI better our daily lives? And do you have any examples of future projects you would be interested in sharing? So, you know, Elizabeth, as you just mentioned, I fully agree that kind of AI is taking over us. And I think that we are not aware enough of how AI is basically everywhere today you know, in transportation, in our shopping experiences, in, in everywhere, really, in, in, in the medical field. I think that the future is going to be more about collaboration between these different systems to, and, and I'm seeing it as a kind of integrated AI systems and that are currently more independent, that you have AI for a different, you have AI, AI is everywhere, but it's kind of fragmented, you know, in a way, because there is AI, AI for different industry, for AI for every different industry, and it's fragmented. And I think that the future will be the integration of those different AI systems from different industries to make our lives even easier and things will, you know, be even faster. And if I'm thinking on the future of specifically the fertility industry, so I think it's going to be completely different from what we were from the current situation, I believe that in five, seven, ten years, this whole industry is going to be completely changed. The process is going to be done with robots controlled by AI systems. And, you know, what we're doing in embryonics is, you know, that's a very simple definition of the future. And I, I don't have, you know, a more simple way to describe it. When we think of future of AI, robots is definitely something that many of us touch on, but it'll be interesting to see how the future of AI transforms over the next few years. 
For this series, we've asked every guest for a piece of advice for the next generation of women in AI and tech leaders. Is there any advice that you can share? I don't want to sound generic, you know, but my advice would be it's kind of don't try to adjust yourself to the, to the popular narratives of success stories. Just try be yourself and kind of be yourself with your values, with your dreams, and you know do it your own way. And it's it it doesn't have to be the narrative of success story that you read or heard about because there are many 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 different ways to to you know to build a successful venture and you know so just try to be yourself and focus on yourself and your dreams. Be yourself, chase your own dreams, remember your values, and the rest will come. That is a fantastic piece of advice. Thank you so much for sharing and for being a part of our series. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for having me. Of course. If you enjoyed this session, subscribe and check out our series at fortressiq.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for joining us today on Hello Human.